Welcome to the Exam Room Rambles Podcast, where veterinarian Dr. Tracy Westergaard shares the same tips, opinions, and explanations she gives you in the exam room, only without barking dogs or hissing cats. We're really glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Exam Room Rambles, and I am recording today from my very fancy walk-in closet recording studio, and we're going to talk about Giardia. I chose Giardia because two weeks ago I did an episode on water safety, and one of the things I mentioned in that podcast was to not let your dog drink the water. Bring fresh water along, and Giardia is one of the reasons why. So, Giardia is also special because people can get Giardia too, and often from the same environmental exposure that dogs are exposed to Giardia. So, Giardia is kind of cool in that it is not a bacteria and it's not a virus especially lately in the news because of everything with corona. There's a lot of talk about immunity and different viruses and bacteria and different things that cause disease. But there is another class out there, and that is the protozoa, which are single-celled organisms. Now, bacteria are single-celled organisms too, but protozoa are different. They're also bigger than bacteria, well, most of them, but they just have a different makeup. They are single-celled organism, and I do believe that they're their very own class or kingdom, I guess I should say. When I was a kid, there were only five kingdoms, and I think now there's seven, um, but that would be like animals, plants, fungus, bacteria, which is now split into two kingdoms, and protozoa. So we're talking about protozoa today. Other protozoas that you might be familiar with that would be in this class would be like cryptosporidium and toxoplasmosis. Those are both organisms that infect animals. So this Giardia is a single cell parasite and it has eight little flagellates or little whips that kind of propel it through water or through your intestines or any kind of liquid. Definitely needs to have moist environment to live. It also has a very distinct two nuclei. So if you look at a picture of Giardia under the microscope, and I'm going to try to find one. I'm going to post it on my Instagram, Exam Room Rambles. If you're on Instagram, please follow me. I have like eight followers, <laughs> so I'd like to have a few more. Um, but it looks like a kite with eyes and then these little flapping whips that propel it. So there's really nothing else that looks like this. And I'm going to get off topic but there was this guy in the 1600s, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, and he was a Dutchman, and he was a lens maker. But the reason he got into making lenses is because he was in the textile business. And back then, they would examine the textiles for like a thread count to see what quality it was. Well, whatever possessed him to start looking at other things, and we don't know this, the guy wasn't a scientist, but he started looking at droplets of lake water, blood, semen, all sorts of things. And he found all these organisms, cells, pictures, and he drew pictures of them and published a book. And then that got some other guys like Robert Hooke, who is kind of considered one of the founding fathers of microbiology, to start putting lenses together to make microscopes also. Anyway, I'm so far off topic from Giardia. Oh, I know where I was going. Giardia is one of the first things that he saw under his set of lenses, which we now call a microscope, and he drew it in his book. He drew a picture of it. And I mean, it's been a couple hundred years since this was discovered, and it really wasn't until the 1980s that human doctors really were convinced that Giardia was pathogenic. 
In humans, Giardia is called a couple things. Well, the technical name is Giardiasis, but we call it beaver fever. <laughs> now, I, I don't know where that beaver fever came from, um, but I love that name. And I always warn my kids when they're doing something stupid, hey guys, I don't want you getting beaver fever because it just sounds so cute. I assume that name comes from the fact that trappers and outdoors people would get this diarrhea from drinking stream water. And I guess they assume there's beavers in those streams. I don't know. It's also what we call traveler's diarrhea. We know that people who travel out of the United States where there isn't always clean water are told not to drink the water. And Giardia is why. When the water mains break or there's a breach in the water treatment process, they tell people they need to boil their water. They'll have a boil order. There have been cities over the years that have had mass outbreaks of Giardia because of a water contamination in their city water. Okay, so infection. God, I'm saying that a lot. Oh, okay. So, so. So whether we're talking about animals getting Giardia or people getting Giardia, the transmission is always the same, and it's always a fecal-oral transmission. Somehow, poop, whether it's in a stream and you're drinking water out of that stream, or whether it's poop that you can't even recognize as poop on wet grass and the dog gets that on their feet and licks their paws, it is always a fecal-oral transmission, and it frequently involves some kind of water or, mo or moisture. I suppose dogs eating other dogs poop too. And I am going to do an episode on that. I've had a special request and that's going to be one I'm going to have to research a little more depth in depth. So just because you or your pet is exposed to Giardia doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to get clinical signs. Infection may or may not cause diarrhea. And if it does cause diarrhea, it may or may not be mild to severe. There are so many things that go into whether an infection causes disease. And this is not just for Giardia, this is for viruses and bacteria too. Number one depends on the immune status or the immune maturity of the animal. Are they immunocompromised because of other disease or medications? Or are they immune system naive because of lack of exposure, like in a puppy or a young animal? The other thing that matters is the dose. Now, in theory, one bacteria, one virus, one protozoa, could cause disease under the perfect storm of circumstances. But honestly, that doesn't happen. It's dose. If you are exposed to a greater dose, there's a greater chance that that pathogen is going to overwhelm, overwhelm the immune system and eventually overtake it and cause disease. Now, there's a ton of shades of gray in there, too, and that's probably where reality lies. Now, we do see Giardia more common in puppies, and I'm sure that's a combination of things. Partly, if puppies are coming out of a breeder, breeders have a more concentrated area of dogs. They are breeding dogs, and so they are going to have more dogs in a small space. The other thing is puppies have a more naive immune system. They haven't been there and done that. They haven't been exposed to all the things out in the world that adult dogs have been. So we actually look for Giardia in puppies. We recommend that every puppy and kitten, now cats, cats could theoretically get Giardia. We do not see it. In cats. I don't think I've ever seen it come back on a, on a fecal test. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. We just don't see cats at the same risk that dogs are. Not many cats swimming in the lake. They're not out hiking with you, drinking out of ponds. It could very well happen in feral cats and, and farm cats. I just don't know how well they're being represented inside of the vet clinic. Okay, what was I talking about? Oh, fecal tests. 
we recommend that every new puppy and kitten bring in a fecal sample, and we test that. We used to do all of our testing in-house with a fecal float, but we have found that we're getting much more accurate results when we send them off to a diagnostic lab, partly because they're still doing that fecal float looking for eggs, but they're also doing some antigen tests. We talked about antigens a couple episodes in our heartworm test. An antigen is a protein on the surface of that pathogen, and it can be picked up using a serology-type test. So there is an antigen test for Giardia. So it will even detect dead, blown-apart Giardia in the stool. Now, does that mean that is the cause of diarrhea, or does that mean that your dog has diarrhea that needs to be treated? No, but it means there's been exposure. And that's where things get a little fuzzy. You have to look at the whole picture. Is the dog sick? Has the dog been sick? Is the dog immunocompromised? Is it stressed? Maybe we don't need to treat it if there isn't clinical signs. Maybe your dog doesn't have clinical signs, but there is a human in the family that is immunocompromised, and we don't want to risk them catching it from the dog, so we choose to treat the dog. Absolutely every situation is individual, and I just can't stress that enough, and that's one of the things I don't like or veterinarians don't like about people googling to find answers and treatments for their pet, because there's so many factors to consider on whether or not we treat an animal for a certain contagious condition. The other thing that makes Giardia kind of tougher to diagnose in just a routine in-house fecal is it's shed intermittently. It's not like there's this perfect assembly line output of little Giardia organisms and cysts. There can be more or less shed at different times in the poop. So it could just be by chance that the poop that we look at doesn't have anything in. There's another test called a fecal wet mount that I used to do a lot and I don't do as much anymore because I never found Giardia, even though I was really sure it was there. And that's where we put a drop of water and a little drop of poop and then put a cover slide over it and we look under the microscope. And when you do find Giardia that way, it's super cool because there's nothing else that looks like it. It's this kite with whips gracefully moving through your microscope. So... I did not do the math to tell you what kind of incidents we have of Giardia positives in the Marshall Animal Clinic, but I did find some statistics. The Merck Manual came up with a huge range from 0.5 to 40% of all shelter animals. As far as human infection in the upper Midwest, Minnesota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, I found the statistic that 3 to 7% of all people, and we're actually one of the higher states, and that makes sense because we've got a lot of water, a lot of outdoors, a lot of livestock. In developing nations, the incident is 30% in people. Now, Giardia can also be in livestock, sheep, cattle, horses, essentially every species, including the beavers, can get Giardia. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean all these animals get sick from it. I'm sure some of them are a natural host, and it's not all the same Giardia. There are different species, and there's actually a subspecies. They call them biotypes, and there's a biotype A to G, and they recognize some of these biotypes as being more contagious or more likely to jump species. So Giardia is not super species-specific, but there is species preference. So could you get Giardia from your cow? Yeah, you could if your cow had Giardia and you had cow poop with Giardia cysts or Giardia organisms under your fingernails 
and you chewed on your fingernails, yeah, it could happen. We don't really know how often that people get Giardia from their pets. It's probably not very likely. In theory, it could happen, but humans are usually pretty good with hygiene. Honestly, it's more likely to be the other way around. A dog could get Giardia from their people by drinking toilet water. I have never been personally diagnosed with Giardia, but I can't believe that I haven't had it sometime in my lifetime. As a kid growing up playing in the creek, playing with animals, (laughs) digging in the dirt, playing in the lake, water skiing, swimming... Like I said, I don't know that I've ever been diagnosed, and probably there's a lot of people that haven't been diagnosed and yet have still had Giardia and their own immune system just eventually took care of it. So in dogs, when we see a positive Giardia and we have decided with the owner that the best thing for that pet is to treat it, there are two options. One of them is fenbendazole, which is Panicure. Now, traditionally, most people know that as a wormer. We use it as a real common wormer in livestock. And the other one is metronidazole, which is flagell, and that is actually an antibiotic that happens to have antiprotozoal property. The trade name for that is flagell. That's a lot of times what they'll give you if you come home from vacation with, with diarrhea. Now, the advantage of Panicure is it's a little more effective. The treatment is a five days on, two weeks off, and five days on again. It comes in a powder and a liquid. The disadvantage is it tastes bad, and it's actually a higher volume. So I think it's more challenging to give your pet this unpalatable liquid higher volume treatment. The metronidazole is a pill. It's much easier to give. You can hide it in a chunk of hot dog cheese, anything like that, but it's a little less effective. Now, metronidazole treats other things too. We use it a lot for our clostridial overgrowth. So sometimes we have a dog that comes in with diarrhea, And unfortunately, we don't have a sample, but that pet needs to be treated because they're feeling lousy. We'll grab metronidazole because it has a little broader spectrum. There are situations where we might have some resistance and we're not clearing up the Giardia. We may use a combination of both. Now, in addition to treatment with medications to suppress or kill the Giardia, we also have to do supportive care. Because these guys are getting dehydrated. I'm going to spare you the details on how Giardia causes disease because we're 15 minutes in and this was going to be a quick podcast about Giardia. But we also like to treat those pets with probiotics, which is beneficial bacteria that's going to help restore the normal flora. Prebiotics, which is food for that probiotic. Fluid support if they're dehydrated. Electrolyte support if their electrolytes are imbalanced. A low-residue diet, which is basically an easily digestible diet. You can go back and listen to, I think it was podcast number one or podcast number two, where I talk about feeding pets people food. We talk about that. Decrease fats. Now you're just going to have to trust me. Lower fat foods. It has to do with the pathogenesis in the GI tract and how the bacteria causes disease. But this diarrhea is a very fatty diarrhea. So just trust me. Lower fat foods. And bathing cleaning up the environment. You don't want contaminated feces on your dog's fur. And sometimes when we have diarrhea, the fur gets kind of messy back there. Now, as we know, soap and water goes a really long way to mechanically wash things off. It doesn't render cysts non-infective, but it goes a long way to making them go down the drain. To actually kill Giardia is tough. You actually have to do a bleach solution. So anywhere from a 1 to 16 to 1 to 32 bleach dilution, which amounts to 
one cup in one gallon of water. And that's pretty dang strong. And they say you have to leave that on for 5 to 20 minutes before rinsing. Here's the good news, though. Drying. Sunshine and dry will also kill the, the cysts. I should have said earlier, but I didn't. But there are two forms, are two parts of the life cycle of Giardia. There is the trophozytes, which are the actual little mobile swimmers. I'm just going to call them that, swimmers. There's the swimmers and there's the cysts. And both are infective. The swimmers are what is going to actually come out of the poop. And it is immediately infective. It's what's going to live in a stream. But if they are stressed and don't have moisture, they're going to go into a cyst stage, which is much more tolerant of drier weather. You can have cyst stages anywhere. They don't survive severe drying conditions. You're not going to get Giardia in Death Valley Desert. But there's still potential to handle quite a bit of drying. So the other important thing you need to do if one of your pets has this is pick up the poop daily. And this should be whether your pet has a health condition or not. If we pick that poop up in our yard, it's going to be less infectious and less chance of spreading disease to other animals. You obviously can't control the beavers pooping in your back creek or any other animals that are pooping in your yard, but at least pick up your dog's poop. Now, these treatments I mentioned before, they're not technically approved for Giardia. We are treating off-label. So what that means is the drug companies that make these drugs, they have not done safety and efficacy tests to prove that this is a treatment. And because that costs a lot of money. So many of the treatments we use are not technically approved treatments. But we know from clinical experience, we know from veterinarians that have come before us, we know from trial and error that these are effective, safe medications. And though I mentioned a little bit on human disease before, because this is a zoonotic disease, I just want to say a few more things about infections in people. I am not a human doctor, so I'm just relaying the research I came across. So first off, to remind you, human infection from dogs, cats, livestock may happen or may not. It definitely can happen in theory. Regardless, if you or someone in your family is immunocompromised from either cancer treatment, diseases like HIV, autoimmune disease, you should be especially careful around animals because there are so many different zoonotic diseases that you could or your family, friend, loved one could be infected with. The most common way that humans are going to become infected in the United States is contaminated drinking water. It has happened before. It could happen again. So essentially poor sanitation. The poor sanitation is why we see it more in developing countries. Now, according to the CDC, it is the single most common intestinal parasite in the U.S. Two to four weeks post-exposure, but can be as often as one week post-exposure, you're going to have potentially a fever and diarrhea that it tends to be especially smelling. <laughs> Poop smells, but this is especially foul-smelling diarrhea and gas, very gassy. As that disease progresses and gets worse, that diarrhea is going to become very greasy because the body can't utilize fats. And then the things that come along with chronic diarrhea, dehydration, fatigue, and weight loss. And this can have an open over a couple weeks. It's not like a hard, fast diarrhea. It can be something that creeps on and just drags you down. Or it can be something that hits you hard and fast and you end up in the hospital. Or maybe you're loose for a day or two and then you're fine. The moral of the story is wash your hands. If you're unsure of water safety because you're out 
backpacking, boil your water, or use water filters. This is a pretty big protozoa, so filtering the water usually will filter it out. And pick up your dog's poop. <laughs> so that's my advice for the day. And um, I hope you guys have a great week. I am not sure what the next podcast will be. I have already used all my banked recorded podcasts, and so now I'm flying by the seat of my pants and podcasting as I go. I'm going to hurry up and edit this one so I can publish it tomorrow. And as you know, you can find me at examroomrambles at gmail.com, or you can like me on Instagram, examroomrambles, or you can find me at the Marshall Animal Clinic during regular business hours, 507-537-1537, or check out our website and online store at marshallanimalclinic.com. Thank you. Thank you.